Christian ethicists have, uh, have argued that the, the idea that each and every human being is sacred comes to humanity from beyond humanity. Hey everybody, Mike here. Welcome to the Vox Podcast. So glad you are tuning in. If you are so inclined, um, would you like us, rate us, subscribe to us, um, wherever you get your podcasts, and um, and particularly on iTunes, that goes a long way to keep us discoverable and allows people to, to find uh, the content uh, that we put out. And so that's very much appreciated. Also appreciated are the 125 or six people who are Patreon supporters. It's unbelievable um, that there are people who believe in this so much that they are willing to support it financially. And I'm so incredibly grateful for that. If you're curious about what that is like, um, go to patreon.com, look up Vox Podcast with yours truly, and you can find us there. Now, uh, we want to spend a little bit of time today. I, I want to take the next today and a couple of more episodes potentially to answer a question I got um, regarding abortion. Abortion has been in the news lately um, because of uh, some legislation that was passed in New York State, because of some legislation that was considered in the state of Virginia, and then the governor of Virginia uh, had made some comments in defense of that uh, legislation that were um, pretty interesting, to say the least. Um, I realize, uh, as a white male, um, I don't, I don't know in any way, shape, or form what it's like to be confronted with the p- potential of pregnancy, to undergo pregnancy, to give birth. What it's like to be an unwed mother, uh, or um, somebody considering kind of giving birth and. In, um, in, in it feeling like a life sentence uh, because you cannot provide for that child. I, I don't know what any of those circumstances are like. And uh, so I want to bring Bonnie on either next episode or the one after. Um, she's had to wrestle through some very tender, hard things. Um, I certainly, and, and granted, I certainly don't understand what it's like to feel and what, and what the world must look like to someone who's, who's considering uh, terminating uh, an unwanted pregnancy. I also realize uh, that my wife and I went through a decision-making process. For us, it was very short. But my, my son, my youngest son, Seth, if you don't know, I know many of you know this, has Down syndrome. Uh, but he was, oh, I smacked my lips and I, I got an email from saying, please don't smack your lips. I will try not to. All right. I'm, I was least aware of it just for that second. So I will do my best. I don't know why I do it. Uh, and I'm hardly aware because I talk so fast. So anyway, thanks for the feedback. But my son, uh, when three months before he was born, we, we, we saw some evidence of some gem- genetic abnormality. Um, in utero, his his intestines were growing outside of his stomach. Uh, there was a certain ridge in his back. There there were some markers that something funky was going on, and they said it, that most likely it was something either called trisomy eighteen, which is a genetic a defect that uh, that does not allow the infant to be viable outside the womb. So they usually die either within hours or maybe a day or two after birth or trisomy 21, which is what we know as Down syndrome. 
And of course, immediately then, we are um, offered the chance to terminate the pregnancy. Now, for us, that was not a, a hard, deliberative decision, but to hear the words being offered to us was pretty uh, staggering. And, um, and so, so, you know, having lived with Seth for 10 years and gotten to know the Down syndrome community and uh, all sorts of interesting things, we, I do have opinions on this stuff, but I realize um, those opinions have to be gently held and given because I don't, I don't know what it's like to be in a situation where this would even be considered. Um, I, there are, there are several, oh, let me read you the question. First of all, Mike, what's your view of abortion and what advice would you have to someone struggling with the decision of whether or not to have one? Great question. And, um, so I want to answer the second part first. Um, first of all, I would never, I, I would never just have, uh, like in a, in a situation like this, just to have a, here's our policy on abortion on a, you know, black and white on a website, or, or here's the definitive answer for every woman considering this question, you know, on a podcast or something that to me, this is the kind of thing that has to be answered out of relationship that just can't be declared in a policy paper or declared in a, you know, um, in a setting that doesn't allow for some of the complications and the nuance of the deep questions associating this decision. A second thing for me is, and I love Greg Boyd said something like this recently in a podcast, and I thought it captured it perfectly where my heart is. As a Jesus follower, I think the kingdom of God, what Jesus inaugurated and will bring to completion, uh, points and is oriented around life and nonviolence. And so in most cases, I would encourage people to carry the infant full term um, and then we can, you know, consider all sorts of other options after that. If it were, if it were, if I were just asked in general, um, I would say the kingdom seems to be oriented around life and dignity of every human person. And, uh, and so I would, uh, if at all possible, encourage people to carry the child f- full term. Now, having said that, I would never give that advice without offering to help um, personally, because it's easy to have an opinion, and it's certainly easy to have a moral opinion on something that doesn't affect you personally. And so my wife and I have felt compelled whenever we've spoken uh, about Down syndrome, whenever we've spoken on abortion or during a pro-life Sunday at a church or whatever, uh, we've always said, and we still say, no one's taken us up on this yet, that that if you, if you were listening, or if someone you know is is wrestling through this decision making process about whether or not to keep the child or to um, to abort the pregnancy. Um, if you are willing to uh, carry that child full term, I know that's hard. I can't even imagine how hard that is, and to and to give birth to that child. Uh, Mike and Justina Erie, Nathan, Han- Hannah, and Seth. Um, would love to do whatever we can to take care of that baby uh, if you weren't unable to take care of that baby yourself. What we, what we want to do is to remove the, the feeling that this is a life sentence um, that you will not be able to provide. We will gladly take that child and raise that child as part of our family, but also knowing that you made a really courageous decision. And um, 
I, I'm, I know I'm naive as to the particulars, but I, I think one of the, the, the really damning things the pro-life movement does is that it, it's not pro-life. It's pro, um, it's pro-fetus. Uh, it's pro-baby. But um, I just see massive inconsistency in the pro-life movement where, uh, like in the State of the Union speech, our president says, I think it was two sentences about protecting uh, uh, infants' rights or child's rights, you know, after 24 weeks of pregnancy and, and something about, you know, innocent children or whatever. And immediately all over my news feed and, and Twitter feed, yes, you know, Donald's pro-life, awesome. And then, but then I can't help but juxtapose that with some statements and actions that he has made that have really sought to dehumanize people. Um, and, and I go, well, I want to be, I want to be pro-life consistently. And so I, I, you know, I'm against euthanasia. I'm against, um, uh, I don't buy just war theory in all of its forms. Uh, I'm, I'm okay with, uh, more restrictions around guns and the ability to get them. Uh, I want to be pro-immigrant, pro-elderly, pro-infant. Uh, I want to be pro uh, other, I want to be pro LGBTQ uh, people having equal rights. I want to be, I want to be pro life, right? If the kingdom is pointed in the direction of life and dignity and nonviolence, well, then that works itself out. I'm, I'm suspicious of capital punishment, as in the way that it's practiced in the United States, right? I don't want to be the kind of person that that buys into the myth of redemptive violence. That violence is what will take. Uh, is the only thing that will conquer more violence. That just simply is not historically true. And it's certainly not true of the guy that many of us have de decided to follow, uh, this Jesus fellow. So I want to be pro-life in all its respects. I, I even apologized, and this is so dumb. Uh, but I, I felt bad. Like we, we had some mice in our basement, so I set some mouse traps, and I would apologize to the mice. Um, Marie Kondo would, would be super excited about that because that's, that's not a far step from apologizing to the mice to apologizing to your or to thanking your clothes as you get rid of them. And so I'm on that train, no question about it. But And I realize there are all sorts of nuances here, but I'm just speaking in generally. If I were sitting down across from someone, I'd want to know them, know their story, know the things they're most afraid of, if at all possible, encourage them. To keep that buried, uh, to keep that baby um, full term, give birth to that child, and then do whatever I could do to sacrifice time, money, whatever it was, to help walk through uh, the whole process with this person, and not just once they give birth to the baby. That's that's just the beginning <laughs> of the process, right? I mean, that's a long, long investment. So. For me, um, I don't fit neatly into the pro-life movement for those two reasons. I'm very, very um, sympathetic to um, people who who are wrestling with. Like we 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 had a, uh, some friends who um, reached out to us, and I don't even remember how, but they were having they were going to have a child with Down syndrome, um, and that child was premature. So it came way early. So that's its own set of issues. Had Down syndrome. The older, the son, the firstborn who had already, who was already walking around, of course, had, um, uh, I think it's cerebral palsy. And this family, I mean, they had one special needs kid. Here, here is sweet Bailey who, um, w w you know, had Down syndrome and was premature. And they, and they just, 
felt like they couldn't, they couldn't handle, you know, what this was going to require of them. And for some reason, we, we, Justy and I were like, Hey, what, you know, we'll, we'll take her. And one of the coolest things that have ever happened in my life, they came up and they saw Seth with our kids. And, um, cause we were just talking to them about how we would raise her and what our values are. And, um, she saw the, the, the mom particularly saw, uh, Seth and just decided, um, a couple of weeks later that they were going to keep, keep the child, right? Papa don't preach. I'm a keeping my baby. Little Madonna for you. Uh, and it was one of the most sacred, special things we've ever been part of. Um, and that doesn't mean it's easy. So, so for us, that's kind of the way I would approach talking to somebody uh, who was wrestling with this decision. The acknowledgement that I can't fully understand, um, the acknowledgement that I, I want to be and, and talk out of relationship, the acknowledgement that I, I do think the kingdom is oriented around life and nonviolence and dignity um, of every image bearer. And, uh, but yet if that, that opinion doesn't cost me something, then I don't feel comfortable giving it. So I don't fit neatly in the pro-life movement because I do have sympathy for people facing, um, special needs choices, or they're in very low economic, uh, socioeconomic, uh, places where they just cannot afford another mouth to feed. I, I, I'm, I get that. I also don't fit squarely in the pro-life category, because I don't think um, most pro-life people are consistently pro-life. And, uh, and then lastly, I think it's just easy to have an opinion and not offer to do anything. So um, it's easy, and it's easy just to fling that opinion on somebody, to stigmatize them, to moralize them. That's not the gospel. That's not what Jesus would do. That's not what Jesus did. And um, so there you go. Now, uh, what do I think about abortion? Well, uh, to answer that question, I want to introduce a theological concept called the Imago Dei. And, and uh, I know a lot of our listeners will know what that is. That is Latin for the image of God. Uh, and, and here's the idea, all right? So, so um, Christian ethicists, I got my master's in philosophy of religion and ethics. And Christian ethicists have, uh, have argued that the, the idea that each and every human being is sacred comes to humanity from beyond humanity. In other words, if, if fallen humanity was left to itself, we will always build hierarchies, we'll always establish dominance, we'll always go after the weak uh, or be afraid of the weak uh, or persecute the weak. We will always form and collect ourselves in, uh, in, in hierarchical strowers of puncture. Uh, of hierarchical structures of power <laughs> or puncture. Um, <laughs> and we'll do that through violence. This is what we do. I can't help it. This is what we do. Um, and so, so Christian historians and ethicists have argued, listen, the, this uh, concept of the Imago Dei, that, that every human person is sacred because they bear the image of God. That's not something that humanity cooked up. Now, um, I, I want to talk a little bit about the Imago Dei. This comes from uh, the book of Genesis, but has reinforced a number of different places throughout the scriptures. And, it, and it's the idea when God says in Genesis 1, let me make humanity in our image, in our likeness, and in the image of male and female, God made them. 
And so uh, they become image bearers. They become likenesses. And this is true of every human person. Um, Now, what's fascinating in the Old Testament is that in Jewish religious practice, much is made of the fact that when the Israelites met Yahweh on Mount Sinai, he was not visibly represented. Yes, there was fire and smoke and thunder, but there was no image. There was no physical representation of Yahweh. Uh, and, and thus, one of the Ten Commandments, of course, is you don't make graven images or you don't make visible representations of Yahweh. Um, this is reinforced in Deuteronomy. Uh, Yahweh could not be visibly represented in any form. So the Jews were prohibited from making images which were characteristic of the worship of their neighbors. Um, but what's fascinating in the Old Testament, of course, is that the nature of Yahweh was not pictured in um, some uh, physical representation, but was rather pictured uh, by the human race, those that bore the image of God. The image of God is this fascinating concept in the Old Testament where um, there's no image of God other than the human beings that are running around and in most cases wreaking havoc uh, over the earth, but they were still image bearers. And, and it was absolutely fascinating that, that humans alone could be called the image of Yahweh because their nature and being reflected their creator. Now, the question becomes, well, how do humans image God? In what sense are they image bearers? And there have been a lot of uh, theories put forward. So some have said that the image of God consists in our capacities, our intelligence, our will, our moral nature. Um, the problem with that, of course, is that human beings can lose their capacities or they develop them over time. They don't have them all right away in, in the case of an infant or in the case of the elderly, we, our, our capacities become diminished over time. Um, so there've been cons- some concerns with construing the image of God that way. A second uh, way the image of God has been construed in our capacity to respond relationally to God. Uh, our relational capacities to love, laugh, joy, sadness, all of those sorts of things, like Inside Out, the movie. Um, the issue there is that those can be diminished as well. And they certainly don't come full-flowered when an infant is born into the world. Thirdly, <coughs> pardon me, the image of God has been construed in, in humanity's commission to rule the earth and subdue it. This is given to the first humans and repeated now for all humanity in Genesis 9. Uh, and of course, again, there, there are problems with, uh, with that because not all of us can exercise dominion equally. Um, and so uh, David, uh, I think it's Gushy, G-U-S-H-E-E, um, makes this really important point that I'm going to read. He says, instead of being found in our capacities, our ability to respond relationally, or our ability to exercise dominion, Humanity's sacred worth is an ascribed status willed by God and communicated through God's actions, commands, and declaration. declarations, one of those being God's revelation that all human beings are made in the image of God. We can't go looking for something in humanity that in and of itself uh, gains us value or worth. The sacredness of life comes from God's decision to which we human beings must accede and by which we must orient our 
lives. So here's the idea. It's not something that you do that makes you human, even though what we can do is amazing. We can relate. Um, we can decide. We can want. We can love. All of those things are true and incredible. And they are ways we image what God is like, no question about it. But the reason that human beings are sacred is because they bear the image of God, not in some capacity that you could lose somewhere down the line, but rather simply because of the intrinsic declaration that human beings are made in the image of God, that is sufficient to say, to say at that point that human beings are worth, every human person is worth dignity and value and protection um, and provision. Why? Not because of something they can, they can have now and lose, but rather simply because, um, because of the, the worth ascribed to them by the creator. That's the idea that when we say something is sacred, um, sacred is, is something ascribed to another thing. Uh, it's, it's marked off. It's kept separate. It's holy, to use religious language. And so what God is saying is that every human being, regardless of their capacities, uh, bears the image of God and is therefore of high value and worth. Now, the idea that, that human beings are made in the image of God um, gets, becomes the basis for specifically two prohibitions in the scriptures, one against murder and one against gossip, interestingly enough. Um, in Genesis 9, it's you, you, to kill an image bearer instead of face the image of God. And James, to speak badly uh, of an image bearer is, he doesn't use this language, but it's to deface the image of God. I mean, it's absolutely crazy. And so, um, and, and in the Hebrew worldview, as, as best I can understand it, humans were viewed as a unity, um, not, not like we see like soul and body. For them, there were two elements in a person's nature, their soul or their nephesh and the flesh, their pasar. The soul was not made to exist apart from the flesh. That's why the, the, hev the hope of heaven in the, the New Testament isn't that we are all angels floating around up in the sky, but rather we get resurrected bodies um, and cruise around on a new earth. And that's the picture. Why? Because human beings are the kinds of things, the kinds of creatures that have both body and soul. They're meant to go together. Uh, the soul was not made to exist apart from the flesh. To destroy the body was to destroy the human personality. And, and then it was considered at that point an affront to the dignity of Yahweh. Um, and so for that reason, and this plays out, it's mentioned specifically in two passages, but it undergirds a whole lot of the ethic of loving your neighbor as yourself. We fight anything that desecrates the image of God. So racism, why does racism matter? Because it desecrates the image of God. It does not acknowledge, it, it, it segregates people off as from the, the rest of the human family and says, well, uh, you know, they're less than. And so we resist that. We fight that. We hate that. Why? Because they're image bearers too. Um, and we do this for the elderly. The elderly, elderly are not useless. Um, they're image bearers. And, and the natural argument would be, 
that at some point, and Christians have historically disagreed as to when this is, that at some point, an infant growing in a mother's womb gets assigned image-bearing status. Now, of course, that becomes the big issue, right? And I'm not a scientist and uh, nor a, um, a doctor or anything, so I, I, I've heard several you know, suggestions, uh, but I don't, I don't know. And the, in the Christian church, some have said it was conception. Some have said it was, um, uh, oh, what was it? They received their soul. They talked about it like in the in the Middle Ages. They would receive their soul. Uh, I think Aquinas said that was when they took their first breath. So I mean, there have been different answers to that question. But at some point in the womb, uh, there is ascribed status, the image bearing status. It's not just the vaginal wall that separates a non image bearer from an image bearer, and um, and so. Um, I, because I want to, uh, hold myself to, um, what I see the kingdom pointing towards, uh, I, I look at every single human person as an image bearer of almighty God. And, uh, therefore they're to be treated with respect, worth, and dignity. And because I don't know when that's ascribed to, a, um, you know, a, a zygote, um, I have no idea when it's a heartbeat, when it's brain activity. I don't know. But because I don't know, I don't want to mess with, um, it's like the genetic engineering that we're beginning to experiment with, right? We can, we can uh, you know, harvest embryos and then test them and get rid of the ones we want and keep the ones that we want. Um, you know, we, we can do genetic testing early, early, early now in the pregnancy and get rid of any genetic abnormality. I have huge issues with this stuff. Um, and, uh, because of, again, we don't know when the person becomes, it comes an image bearer. And so for me, if at all possible, we encourage people to, to go to full term with their baby. They do not have to, uh, keep that child, um, for centuries, the Christian community was known for what they would do with children that were unwanted, children that were abandoned, children that were left on the doorsteps of churches or other public places. And um, so I think these days, rather than just sitting and, and yelling into the pro-life, pro-choice, you know, dichotomy that sits in front of us in, uh, politically, um, it seems like a much better option to become the kinds of people who will simply do anything to support young women or any woman for that matter, who is, who is contemplating an abortion to love her, to serve her, to respect her, regardless of whether or not she makes the choice that we would have made to, to support them in particular, if they choose to keep their baby, uh, but to support them regardless, nevertheless. Um, I just think that's, that's what it means to be salt and light in the world. I know People will disagree with this, and I will even turn it off and probably disagree with some of the things I just said. But um, I, I want to keep it short because I'm just monologuing today. Um, next episode, I want to talk about another angle on this whole conversation that I think is super important. And um, anyway, my brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you, my friends. And may he give you peace in these days. Um, it is so, so very easy to get caught up in how bad the world seems. 
And it's so hard to be purveyors of hope and blessing. And yet, that is precisely the duty for those of us who are following Jesus that we've been called to. Regardless of whether or not we agree with political opponents, regardless of whether or not we see horrifying behavior, we simply are to imitate the Father who shows sunshine and rain to the just and the unjust alike. So my friends, until next time, thank you so much for listening. Bye.